Welcome to The Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. I'm your host, Yvonne Winget Sanchez. I cover national politics for the Arizona Republic. And I'm Ron Hansen, also a national reporter for the Republic. In today's episodes, we're talking about the top six stories we're keeping an eye out for in 2020. Some of them are national, like the presidential and primary elections, and the Senate seat. Some of them are state-based, like recreational marijuana, and who is going to control the state Senate and the state House. We'll walk you through what the story is, what you need to know about it, and why it's important. Here to talk with us today is Andrew Oxford. He covers the state legislature for the Republic. Andrew, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about these six stories for 2020. And as we bring them up, we'll hit on what the story is, what you really need to know about each of them, and why they're important. We can all kind of chime in since we kind of dabble in each other's areas. Sound good? So to start us off, Ron, what's the first story you are keeping an eye out for in 2020? So I think this is an important story at any time, but especially as we walk into 2020. Voter demographics and how they're evolving in Arizona. Yvonne and I are sort of getting this year started with uh, a look at the way that the demographics in Arizona have changed and, and kind of reshaped the political map already. But out here, people don't pay attention too much. They're in their own little world. Uh, I'm an old Brooklyn girl, a Jersey girl, and I'm out more, uh-huh. and I don't do that kind uh-huh. of stuff. If you look at all the states, I moved from New Jersey. Right. Democratic state, it's terrible. It's just terrible. Ta- ha- taxes are high, health care's no good. I think I, I, I just kind of floated by not paying much attention before the election. You know, I, I, just, I was, you know, we didn't know, we knew it was going to be bad with Trump, but we didn't know it was going to be this bad. When we talk about how they're changing, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, especially in these areas that we've really identified along the Loop 101 and kind of where folks there tended to split their tickets in 2018, more so than in previous cycles. And welcome back to Square Off. It is one of the stories of the midterms, Maricopa County turning deep purple. You see it in county voters splitting their tickets, voting for a Republican statewide candidate and a Democrat. So around that Loop 101, roughly, it's not perfect, you'll find a number of precincts where the results in 2018, for example, were notably different than what we saw in 2016. We did see, for example, in 2018, there were a number of Ducey voters who must have voted for Kirsten Cinema at the same time. That trend most obvious with two candidates, Republican Governor Doug Ducey and now Democratic Senator-elect Kirsten Cinema. This is an area that has had a fair amount of new housing and new residents coming in. It's just more fluid politically, it seems, based on their voting records than what we see in other parts of the valley where it's reliably red or it's you can always expect it to go blue. And some of those people are coming in from other states. These are retirees or people who are being lured by uh, really lucrative jobs at Intel, GoDaddy, some of these um, anchors out in the East Burbs. They're educated. They're bringing with them a lot of their ideals, especially from Democratic-leading states. Yeah, so this is something that we've seen nationally for the Democratic Party. They have really seen the tide of college-educated voters swing in their favor, and 
this is happening here locally as well. And when you look at the Southeast Valley, when you're talking about Chandler and Gilbert, this is sort of ground zero for that. These are tech-based communities with a lot of college-educated, knowledge-based workers who are voting in ways that might be unfamiliar to Arizona residents who have been here for a while. And we also are going to spend a lot of time talking about these younger, diverse voters who may perhaps tend to lean Democratic. These are uh, the people who uh, really have come of age in the era of of SB 1070, the anti-illegal immigration law. Uh, They are very fired up about climate change, about health care, and they perhaps more than any young cohort before them really understand that they have a lot at stake in this cycle. They do. You know, in their case, it's a, a really sort of the uh, the matter of taking blue precincts and making them even bluer and ratcheting up turnout in a way that is sort of making races, especially the statewide, more competitive than what we're accustomed to. Okay, so uh, Yvonne, what else are you keeping your pulse on for 2020? So the presidential election, this is obviously the biggest story anywhere in 2020, and you guys are going to hear so much about it, you're going to want to vomit. Um, But in Arizona, we'll learn a lot about our political evolution as a state. The president is especially polarizing, and uh, remember, he won his 2016 election by just 3.5 percentage points, which is pretty narrow. He's put Arizona-centric issues at the center of his campaign border security, illegal immigration, for example. And he's putting Arizona in the national spotlight, again, apart from the state's kind of more purplish drift. Trump and Vice President Mike Pence will spend a significant time here. Uh, As we bring our campaign back to Arizona, uh, that uh, you're going to see the the Trump-Pence team win the day again in Arizona. And I think we're going to- And Democrats are going to be paying a lot of attention to Arizona as well. I would expect a visit by Vice President Joe Biden, who's running for the, on the Democratic ticket early in the cycle. Another visit likely by Senator Warren. Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, is expected to make an appearance not too far off from now. And Ron, you've been looking at the polls. What do the polls suggest for 2020? Look, this state is very much up for grabs. And entering this race, especially uh, depending on the nominee that the Democrats settle on, this state could be a, a battleground all the way to the finish line. So both parties are already working to make this state uh, more favorable for themselves. And again, given uh, the state's history, this is really unusual to see. And this is what happens when you become a tier one state, a battleground state. Uh, Republicans, I was, I was talking to one just the other day. He is very tied in with the Trump campaign, and they're worried. I was at a campaign event for Trump's Arizona team, and Trump's campaign manager, Brad Piscarle, was telling people, we really, really need you. The bottom line from him was basically Arizona is in danger of losing its status as a red state. So... What I come here today is ask for you to stand up, fight your neighborhoods, get other people to volunteer, continue these trains, because it's going to take all of you to make sure Arizona stays red. This is an important county, as we all know. They just point to how early they got involved here in Arizona. I mean, they named their state team back in May 
for 2020. That is astounding. And we're just now seeing Democrats set up shop here in Arizona. Right. And, you know, we're seeing other people making their way across the uh, the map as well. And from people who are election forecasters to those who are just uh, political observers and pundits and such, they're talking about this state being more competitive for Democrats than Wisconsin and Texas. So these are sort of markers that show that all the interest that we're hearing nationally in those kinds of states, especially Wisconsin, which was really sort of the tipping point for the 2016 election, now you're hearing about Arizona sort of being closer to the, the fulcrum of the 2020 election. There's also the U.S. Senate race here in Arizona, which will be another major story uh, and would be the biggest story of the year, if not for the presidential election, it seems like. Yvonne, what what are your sort of big picture impressions of that race as we start the year? Sure. As you said, the race will help decide control of the of the Senate next year. That's huge by itself, but it could completely overturn years of a GOP-led Senate delegation in historically red Arizona and really help cement Arizona's changing political kind of purplish nature. So we all know the major players here. Martha McSally, she's the Republican incumbent who lost in 2018 but was appointed to the seat once held by John McCain after he died. This breaking news coming out of Arizona at the moment. Governor Ducey appointing Congresswoman Martha McSally to the U.S. Senate. This, of course, following the resignation. And Mark Kelly, he is the Democratic challenger. He is a retired astronaut, and he's married to uh, former Democratic Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. He's been a gun control activist in the years since. You know, it becomes pretty obvious pretty early when you get into space that we're all kind of in this together. Mark Kelly, a retired NASA astronaut and husband of former U.S. Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, who was wounded in a mass shooting in 2011, is launching a bid for the U.S. Senate. He's vying for this. Both candidates are very well funded. Both are well known. Uh, I think what's going to be really interesting to watch at least early in the year is McSally is going to be chained to her seat in the Senate uh, as the impeachment trial unfolds. We don't know how long that's going to last or even when it's going to start, but that will complicate her ability to kind of fly back and forth and crisscross the country every week to campaign. Um, At the same time, Kelly will be, I would presume, exploiting uh, her inability to get back home and really try to Uh, make as many moves around the state as he can. Um, Kelly's biography as an astronaut and his marriage to Gabby have obviously been very central in his campaign. But I'm really watching to see what else we might learn about him. Um, I would expect him to really play it safe a la Kirsten Sinema. Uh, That was a plan that worked for her. She was able to really stick to her talking points, really not go beyond uh, what she wanted to say. She did not let anybody else dictate the terms of of her message. And I think that was really critical to her winning. So stylistically, what can we expect from Senator McSally on all this? McSally needs people to like her. She has a really big problem right now, especially with women. Uh, She needs to get her favorability numbers up. So, you know, how might she do that? Well, She needs to convey that she is like us, right? She is um, someone who has experienced some of the ups and downs of life. She is somebody who can communicate what that has meant to her 
emotionally, how that has helped form her into the person that she is now. I think she really needs to go beyond the, you know, I was a combat fighter pilot uh, persona that she clearly has cemented in everybody's mind. But she, uh, I don't know, she needs to reveal something new. And maybe she will do that with this book that she has coming out in May. Um, this is a memoir that she has been working on for a very long time. I'm not convinced that there will be anything new in there, but we'll see. Okay, so Senator Cinema has had a well-chronicled uh, quarrel with her uh, seatmate, Senator McSally. Will she stay out of this race? Can we expect her to be involved uh, overtly or more behind the scenes? It's a really good question, and that's something else we will be watching. I know behind the scenes they've had conversations about what he can do to kind of pull pages from her playbook. Kirsten Cinema doesn't stick her neck out for a lot of people unless you're one of her constituents. That's her reputation. So remains to be seen if she'll do something to help Mark Kelly. Funny you should note how Mark Kelly has learned from Senator Cinema's playbook. It seems like allies of Senator McSally are borrowing from her as well. Take a listen to these two audio clips. The first one is from Senator Cinema's 2018 campaign. I was born in the desert. When you wake up each day and you hear those doves, you smell that desert sand, at least for me, I'm overwhelmed at how lucky I am to be born in the best state in the country. And the second one is from the McSally Allies this year. When I first came to Arizona, I immediately fell in love. It's extraordinary. Uh, it's an adventurous and amazing place that I am so glad to call home. I got to see it from the ground. And just to give you a visual, these ads are nearly identical. They both show aerial footage of desert landscape, and as you can tell, they have a similar script too. And I know Arizonans deserve a senator who just solves problems. I'm a pragmatic problem solver. So if I hear there's a problem in our community, I'm going to spring into action and I'm going to solve it. So far, we've had... So the Senate campaign is going to be waged here every day for a year. Early in the year, we're going to have the presidential preference election. This is the Democrats' chance to select their nominee from the state of Arizona. This is important by itself for obvious reasons. But it may have more value in 2020 than in recent history because of the state's battleground status. Whatever happens in the primary will clearly offer us some insight into voter energy and the Democratic mood as measured by who wins. It's also a big test for election administrators. Andrew, do you think they'll be ready? That's the thing, is 2016, the PPE was a mess, right? The primaries, there were long lines, too few polling places. I think the pressure is really going to be on the new county recorder, Adrian Fontes, and the Board of Supervisors to make sure that this runs a lot more smoothly. And of course, part of that is you're not going to have as many people voting, right? It's only Democrats who are having a presidential preference election this year. Republicans are... are or foregoing that whole formality at this point and just sticking with President Trump. So you're going to have fewer voters, which should make it smoother. But it's still, I think, a lot of election officials and observers are going to look at it as a sort of test run for what's going to come up in November with new equipment, uh, more people voting by mail, all that good stuff. Politically, when was the last time Arizona went for a Democrat? 
Right. So in the general election, it was in two, 1996 when Bill Clinton was reelected against Bob Dole. The, the trick this time, I think there's a, a great sense that who the Democrats nominate uh, in the fall will go a long way toward deciding on how competitive the state remains for, you know, sort of the national political types. So that's another sort of important point in this presidential preference primary, because it will tell us just where is that mood of that Democratic primary electorate. There is big differences between Senator Elizabeth Warren, for example, and Vice President Joe Biden. Where is the state at? And right now, for example, we don't know where that overall race will be. We don't know how Iowa or New Hampshire are going to turn out. So to some extent, we'll, voters here will decide based on who's still on the menu when they vote. But again, it will offer at least some insight as to how much discord there may be in the far left ranks of the Democratic primary electorate if, for example, they see Bernie Sanders is lagging or if the moderate wing is feeling the need to make a statement with Mayor Pete Buttigieg, for example, even though it looks like Warren is running away with it or not. So we want to see how the voters here shake out. And again, national types will also be keeping an eye on it just for that very fact. That Democratic energy really could trickle down to who controls the state house. There are several districts in play when we're talking about the, the state level. Uh, Andrew, can you give us a sense of what those districts are and what the margins are right now in both chambers? Yeah, Democrats have gotten close enough, I think, to really smell a speakership or the power of chairing influential committees over at the state capitol. You've got a 17-13 split in the Senate, a 31-29 split in the House. That's the closest it's been, I think, since the 1960s. So all the Democrats really need to do is pick off one or two seats here or there, and they think they've got enough spots on the map to do that. They really feel like they've got the Republicans playing defense. If you look at areas like in the northern part of the state, there's the district around Flagstaff currently held in the House by Bob Thorpe and Walt Blackman. They're both Republicans, but Democrats got very close to winning a seat in that district last year. Out in Chandler, you have you know, Jeff Winninger is just hanging on. Uh, Anthony Kern and Shauna Bullock out in the western end of the valley. You know They've won by comfortable margins, but liberal groups are already targeting them. It's interesting to watch that. I think they feel confident about Democrats narrowing those margins there. In the Senate, you have Kate Brophy-McGee. You know, her race never really ended, and her seatmates in the House are all Democrats now, and her district around Paradise Valley has lost Republican voters over the last year. So she's got this really challenging uh, landscape going into 2020. Back up north, you have Sylvia Allen, who shares the Bob Thorpe, Walt Blackman district. Democrats are really going to be going after her. And uh, again, out in the eastern end of the valley, you know, J.D. Mesnard's district, that's another one that I think Democrats feel you know, is tight and that they can really make a play for. So apart from the election strategy and, and how that may play itself out, Give us a sense as to what difference it would make substantively if Democrats were to take one or both chambers. Right. So you'd still have two more years of a Republican governor. So 
It's not like Democrats are going to come roaring in and be able to implement everything they, they want and everything they promise. You're going to have a divided government. And I think you'll see Democrats really debate how to proceed with that, whether to kind of you know make their stands even if it is you know, futile and you've got Doug Ducey kind of vetoing their priorities or whether they can find – common ground with Ducey. You know, Ducey's talked a lot about bipartisanship. Well, this could really be his opportunity to do that. And you could see some ground maybe to do that around things like a watered down red flag gun control law or on education, your charter school oversight. Those could be areas where you might see the Democrats and Ducey able to get together and, and do something Democrats could also stand in the way of rolling back some of these regulations that the governor has been so fond of eliminating. That's right. They could also really be a check on some of the more right-wing elements in the Republican Party at the legislature. They could really block a lot of the more conservative policies that Republicans have really been able to carry through over the last you know, many years. Okay. So uh, that's what's possible. It's what could happen. Republicans are not going to just roll over and, and watch this happen. What do they do now to make sure that none of this comes to pass? I, I think one sign is you're beginning to see legislative leadership try to play up the culture war over the last several months, right? You've seen leadership uh, attacking Kathy Hoffman, the superintendent of public instruction. She's not on the ballot in 2020. When I think of Planned Parenthood, they have created the business plan of hell. When Kathy Hoffman promotes this. I don't have to any question about radicalizing children and their sexuality. And what I think is, is really going on is an effort to rally Republicans on things like you know, sex education, social issues, and try to turn out Republicans, especially in these districts that could be in play. I think the question is whether it works or whether it further drives away suburban voters, which the GOP has been hemorrhaging, who might be turned off by really socially conservative messages. Okay, so let's turn to the last issue of 2020. And this one, for me at least, is maybe the most fascinating. The others were, you know, more or less predictable, just looking at the calendar and, and that sort of thing. This one feels like a wild card to me, uh, a bolt from the blue. Uh, recreational marijuana in Arizona. Uh, Andrew, give us a sense as to why this issue is so significant as we look at, at the months ahead. A few reasons. I think this could happen at the ballot box, but there could also be reason for you to hear a lot about this at the legislature this year, right? Proponents of the initiative heading into 2020 seem like they've tried to take a lot of lessons from the failed vote in 2016. They have promised licenses for new entrepreneurs to get into the industry. They've promised to make criminal justice a part of the measure and ensure expungement of records for past marijuana arrests. All of this could really help, I think, rally uh, proponents and, and give some more cohesion to the Yes campaign, maybe dole some of the skepticism that was there about the 2016 measure. It could also really help rally voters generally and increase turnout, which might have effects elsewhere on the ballot. And that's why I think you could hear maybe something about this at the legislature. There's all the more reason for folks to try and find uh, a more watered down alternative that they can try and pass and sort of stave off maybe a big turnout around this in November. Okay. So let's talk about that for just a moment. What reason would there be for 
Republicans at the state house to want to pass some kind of recreational marijuana. This is something that seems pretty anathema to you know their their messaging all along. Why would they even consider it? Again, I think that doling some of that turnout, doling some of that excitement, perhaps, and in going into November, being able to drive people out to the ballot box by saying, hey, vote yes on legalizing marijuana in Arizona. The problem, of course, is like you say, this is anathema to you know, what a lot of legislators stand for. And I certainly can't see you know, Doug Ducey or legislative leadership going for that. But there's a challenge here with the legislature would have a lot more power to manage legalizing marijuana. They'd have a lot more flexibility in setting policies around it if this was approved at the legislature instead of at the ballot box. If it's approved at the ballot box, legislature and the state government are restricted in a lot of ways in how this rolls out in the state. I think one big question, though, is whether opponents turn out in the same way in 2020. You've already got Republicans playing defense to hold on to the legislature. There could be other initiatives on the ballot about health care, campaign finance reform, auto loans. So, I mean, do the do the Chamber of Commerce groups that have usually opposed legalizing marijuana in the past really want to spend a lot of resources in the middle of a very consequential, crowded election trying to stop something that a lot of folks see as an inevitability? Yvonne, you've covered marijuana uh, in the earlier uh, initiative. How much has this state's changing demographics um, and the evolving uh, measure in front of voters, uh, how do those things interact? Do you think that this state is, is more poised to vote yes on recreational marijuana in whatever form it is? Or do you see how people may have threaded a needle here? Or? I think that we are more poised to pass it now compared to 2016, especially because, as Andrew talked about, um, they took some of the, the key provisions that caused a lot of heartache last go around away. I still think the Christian right and folks like Kathy Herod, who is a very well-known lobbyist of the Center for Arizona Policy, I think they're going to have a hard time holding their nose and letting this thing go through without a fight. She has not gotten a lot under Governor Ducey's administration, certainly not as much as she would have hoped. And I think that uh, she will not sit on her hands. As I said, this is an issue that for me is just sort of the most intriguing one of 2020, just because, uh, as Andrew said, this kind of will linger throughout the calendar year and, and uh, perhaps reach a climax in November um, and drive turnout in ways that could ricochet all over the ballot. So uh, one to watch. All right, guys, so we have the changing demographics of the state. We have the presidential election, the Senate race, the Democratic presidential preference election, the uh, control of the state house, and the ballot initiative that would legalize marijuana. That is a lot for 2020. We will be your Sherpas along the way. I hope we just... Uh, we can make it through. But for today, that is it, Gaggle listeners. Just a heads up, we'll be taking next week off for Christmas. We hope you all have a wonderful holiday. We will be back on New Year's Day with an episode that will give you a guide on how to survive 2020. It's instructive for us too. It'll be a good one. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. If you want to get in contact with me, I'm on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. 
And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. And I'm at Andrew B. Oxford. While we still have you, please don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend. Today's episode was edited and produced by Taylor Seeley and Katie O'Connell. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and AC Central. <laughs>